Good morning. Merry Christmas. Good to see all seven of you here in the building. Three, five, eight of us. Okay, and all of you online, welcome to you too. Um, we, uh, I, I do want to reiterate what Jake said about the Christmas pageant and the Christmas Eve service. There was a ton of work uh, put in by a lot of people, but I want you to know that that pageant would not have happened if Jake and Beth hadn't been driving that, and Christmas Eve would not have happened if Phoebe Nickerson had not spent about 8,000 hours working on that program. And I, as I sat there watching it, and I'd seen bits and pieces, and I'd seen the whole thing, and and yet, as I sat there on Christmas Eve watching it with my family and at the end where everybody's passing those candles along, it just, it was a, a very tangible example to me of what Jake said a few weeks ago, that joy is something we share, something personal, interpersonal and relational. And just seeing many of your faces as you pass that candlelight along made my experience of joy for Christmas so much richer. So thank you uh, for participating in that. And we can't wait until next year when we'll do it here, hopefully again. Uh, Advent is, is, is over and today is called Christmas Sunday and this ushers us into a new season uh, in our year, um, the season we call the Gospels. If, if you look in our lectionary guide, you can see all about that. The fourth year of our cycle that we're in takes us into the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. Uh, Mark was, according to most, the first person to write down the story of Jesus. Scholars tell us that Mark had been listening to all of Peter's stories, Peter's eyewitness accounts and interactions with Jesus, and he sat down very intentionally to write them out in an order uh, for a reason. He addresses this question of the Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. It was the, the one that Israel had been waiting for to come and sit on the throne of the new kingdom. And Mark's writing as they're under the domination of Rome. So it's natural they would see the Messiah as one who would overcome Rome. And yet Jesus was actually crucified by Rome. And, and it, it raised these questions. Was he really the Messiah? It, and if so, why would the Messiah do this? Why would this happen to the Messiah? So, so Mark writes his book to talk about this misunderstood Messiah. The first eight chapters are his interactions in Galilee, his, his miracles and his teaching. And, and you begin to see him, people begin to question and say, is this the Messiah? Then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, it's the disciples wrestling with what Messiah actually looked, looks like. And then in 11 to 16, this third section, Mark actually shows what I will call these, the, the coronation events, the way that the Messiah is exalted to be the king. And, and when you read Mark, I have to tell you, he does rapid fire stories. It's move, move, quick, quick, quick. It's always like he's running on to the next story. So it, each week we're going to look at three or four of these little short stories together and kind of draw the parallels out of them. It, it will be very helpful if you'll read along in your guide and have some sense of, of all the stories. Because I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the stories. I'm going to look at the bigger picture each week. But he's got a, a point to make. And we'll, we'll see it in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. He writes the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
John wore clothing made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And at once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And you can see Mark likes to move fast. He, he, he's the one gospel that gives us no Christmas story. He just jumps right into the grown-up Jesus. And Mark gets right to the point. He doesn't beat around the bush. He begins by stating his point very clearly in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word gospel, the Greek word is evangelion. We get evangelism from it, but it means good news. And typically it was the good news of the birth announcement of a king, the gospel about Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, I, I, <laughs> I was watching the office on Netflix last night, and Michael Scott says, Jesus, his last name is Christ. And I'm like, that's not his last name. That, that isn't. Christ is, is the term for Messiah. It's a title, not a name. And so Mark's saying right away, here you go, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He's making clear right away that what Jesus is, this coming of Jesus to Israel, is actually the long-awaited coming of God. See, in the Jewish mindset, they expected God to come, God. And, and if you remember, we talked back in the, the Ezra-Nehemiah stage of this year about the, when the temple was rebuilt after the exile. And, and in the, in the, after the exodus, when they're building the tabernacle, right, they set it all up in the glory, the presence of God descends on the temple. Same things happen when, when Solomon builds a temple in Jerusalem, the glory and the presence of God descends on the temple. But in this temple after the exile. They build it, but nothing happens. And so the prophets begin to talk about the coming of God to the temple. That, that one day he would return. And that's what's happening as Mark quotes the prophets in verses 2 and 3 of, of Mark 1. Now listen, he, he says the word of, of the Lord according to the prophet Isaiah. He actually quotes Malachi and Isaiah. And for those of you that always get upset about, about the scripture and, and, and we have to make sure everything fits, he, he's, he's lumping these, these two prophets together because the prophets for Mark spoke with one voice. But he says from the prophet Malachi 3, 1, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare my way before me. Then suddenly the Lord, the Hebrew word Adonai, you are seeking, will come to his temple 
See, that's the idea that, that in the past the Lord had not come down in this, post, in this exilic temple after the exile. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then Mark merges that with this from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, Yahweh. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, Elohim. Once again, these Hebrew titles for the Jewish word for God. Mark is making this audacious claim about Jesus that God coming back to his temple, the God they've been waiting for for years, is right here in Jesus. It's happening right here and right now. And so John came, he says. He says, remember guys, there's been this story from the prophets that the one is going to come. There's one preparing the way. God is going to come to his temple. And so John came. And the people came out to see him, the people from all over. And he looked like one of those prophets of old with camel's hair and a leather belt. And he was saying, get ready, repent, because God's coming. One who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. This is not like John the Baptist is the opening act for a better band. That's not, it's not like there's a really, he's a, he's a preacher in the wilderness and there's a really good preacher coming on after he gets the crowd warmed up. This, this is something they've been talking about for years in their history, that someone would come and prepare the way for God. It's a radical claim. And then when Jesus shows up in verse 9, you begin to see how clearly Mark wants you to understand exactly who he is, because the first event that Mark tells you with Jesus on the scene leads to the Trinity on the riverbank. You see, he's moving fast, story to story. And in three verses, he talks about this baptism. And then in two verses, this testing in the wilderness. But, but he starts in the baptism, and he shows how Jesus models humble surrender. You know, there, there are lots of reasons that people give why Jesus was baptized. John called it a baptism of repentance, and, and that's always bugged me a bit. And I've heard people say Jesus sets an, an example that we should be baptized. And, and I think that's true. But what did Jesus have to repent of? What did he have to repent of? Nothing. And, and, and it helped me a bit when I realized that at age 30, when a priest came forward to, to do their service, they were consecrated as a priest by being baptized. That's what would happen. And so whether, whether it's just an example for us to be baptized or whether it's an example of Jesus surrendering to the, the, the making of this, what he's going to be the high priest, either way, the, the point here is that Jesus models a humble surrender to the plan of God. You know, when he comes up, John the Baptist, if you read the Matthew story, John says, what do you think you're doing? I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says this, this is what's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. He's, he's surrendering humbly to God's calling. He sets an example for all of us, not just to be baptized, but to surrender to the leadership of God. And after he does it, he receives what I'll call the divine endorsement. It's this pivotal moment covered in all four Gospels, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Mark once again saying, guys, this is God who has shown up because as Jesus comes out of the water, heaven is torn open. The Spirit, you've got the Son, you've got the Spirit descending on Him like a dove, and you've got the voice of the Father saying, you are my beloved Son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. It's the Trinity. The Father identifying and endorsing Jesus as the one He loves, the one, the one who's, who's pleased Him. The Spirit coming down to fill, to empower, to lead him, because he's going to lead him into the wilderness. And the son surrendered and serving all in one, in, in one moment. They're all right there. But like Mark, even though it's an important moment, he doesn't linger. He moves on 
It says the Spirit leads Jesus into the desert for what we see as a test of faithfulness. Mark takes 40 days and three major temptations by Satan and condenses them down to two verses. He's in a hurry all the time. But you have to see the parallels here. Because God was coming, and He was coming because the people of Israel had never been faithful. They'd never been able to resist the temptation to do their own thing. They were set free from Egypt and in the desert. They forgot God. They resisted Him. They rebelled against Him. He brought them into the promised land. Once again, they forgot Him. They resisted. They rebelled. But in this desert wilderness, Jesus is tempted and He's faithful. And Mark continues by showing why God has come. In verses 14 to 20, he's on again, and he moves to the mission of God. And we're invited to join Jesus in what he's doing, this, this small task he has of transforming the entire world. The mission is what, God call, what Jesus calls the good news of the kingdom. The king is coming, the kingdom is near, and it all fits in with what the people are thinking. Okay? They're expecting God to come and establish the kingdom, to sit on the throne, but, but their ways they thought he would do it look a little bit different than Jesus. But this is still the central assertion that Mark is making, that Jesus is saying, this new kingdom, the Messiah, God coming back to be at his temple, it's happening, the time has come. And so Mark says there's a call to respond. Repent and believe the good news. It's not news you file away. It's not like you're saving this knowledge for, for your jeopardy appearance one year, and so you can answer the question. This is, this is an, a call to action, a call to respond, to repent. And we, we've talked about repenting means turn around. I'll talk more about that in a moment. It's a little deeper than that. But to repent and to believe, to begin to act out of this new truth. And the new truth is that the kingdom is here right now. The time has come, and everything is different. This is the mission of God, to, to institute this kingdom and then to spread the news, calling people to respond. And then he begins to look around and assemble what, what we can at least see as the beginning of a very unlikely team. Simon, who would be Peter, and Andrew, two brothers, fishing. Later on, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are also called the sons of thunder because they're so volatile. Four fishermen. Now, you've got to see, these, these are his first four advisors, as, or his first four students as a rabbi. And the fishermen were the guys who didn't make it in Torah school. The best students who, who were kids learning the Torah were picked by the rabbis to follow them. If you couldn't make that cut, then you went out, you got a trade, you lived your life. And that's what the fishermen were. So none of these guys ever expected a rabbi to come to them and say, follow me. It's the last people who ever expected a rabbi to ask them to follow. You see, as we, follow, as we go with Mark, we're going to start seeing that this Messiah... And the way he does things is very different than what people had expected. Misunderstood. The challenge is people thought they knew what the Messiah would do, what he would be like, how he would come, how he would act. But Mark begins to lay out this story in his whole gospel. We'll be going over it over the next nine or ten weeks of how different Jesus is. How the team he assembles, even them, are, are not, it's, it's not the people you would expect him to pick, to be Followers of the Messiah. And so Mark's spitting out these stories rapid fire. You know, the first one, hey, the God of the Old Testament is coming. We've been waiting. Here he is, and he shows up, and he gets baptized, and then there's the Trinity. Boom. And then Jesus demonstrates that Israel as a nation has failed, but I'm going to be faithful in the desert. 
He reiterates the kingdom of God is near. Repent, believe, follow me. You, 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 you unlikely people who thought you had no history, no future with, with God. I want you to follow me. Mark is saying this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So the question is, how can we start preparing ourselves for the Messiah? He says, Jesus is God, come in the flesh. And these are the stories he's using to pave the way for us to understand what Messiah means. But what does it say to us today? 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, right? But the whole point, and we did that in the candlelight, and the whole point of Jesus coming is that he's still coming through us today, that we are passing the light of Christ everywhere we go. So how can we best prepare ourselves to be who he calls us to be? It's food for thought because, you know, we're all scratching out our, <laughs> our 2021 New Year's resolutions, right? You're writing them out. I know you're all thinking about it. Everybody's happy. It seems everybody's kind of happy that 2020 is almost over. I read one person that said they usually stay up to see the new year in, but they're staying up this year to make sure the old year leaves because they don't want any more of 2020. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you four things. And, and as you read, I'm sure you'll find more of the Spirit. and God can teach you more things personally. But four things that I see Mark is pointing us out, pointing out to us as he begins. The first is what I've said over and over. This is just the beginning. I think it's important to realize that. Far too often, for some reason, the life, well, let's say the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus become this event that happened that enables us to say a prayer to receive forgiveness from God and have a relationship with him. And then we just wait around until he comes back. But you see, it's, it's not an event that was finished. It was just the beginning of the good news about Jesus. Something's started. Luke would say the same thing at the beginning of Acts in Acts 1. In my former book, Luke writes, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. All that Jesus began to do until he'd been taken up into heaven. And the, the idea is, Luke's saying here, he's continuing to do things. That the body of Christ, which is you and me, are continuing to work out. This is the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And our message is just what his is. The kingdom of God is near. It's here. One of the the best insights I've ever heard about our role as Christians was, was in an interview with a singer. His name's Derek Webb. I've used this before, but here it is again. He, he says, as a Christian, what I'm going to be concerned with is my king and his kingdom coming and proclaiming that kingdom. And where I see hunger, I need to proclaim the kingdom where there will be no hunger by putting food in people's mouths. That's part of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We're here to proclaim Jesus coming and his kingdom coming behind him. That's the gospel proclamation. And the way we proclaim the gospel is when we see people who are sick, we proclaim to them a kingdom coming where there will be no sickness. And how do we do that? We do it by caring for them, by giving them life-giving drugs. Where we see war, we're called to proclaim a kingdom coming where there will be no more war. Where, where there will be peace. And the way we do that is we work for peace and we get creative in ways that we promote peace and we learn to be preemptive about peace. He's saying that the, the gospel came and began with Jesus and continues through us, that we proclaim this kingdom in our words and in our actions. And as we enter a new year, we need to set our lives to living out what Jesus has begun 
until he returns to finish it. In our neighborhoods, at our work, in our school, in our families. Second thing I see here is that we need to understand repentance as rethinking. Repentance as rethinking. John the Baptist said, repent. Show your repentance by, by your baptism. And Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. And later on, Peter would write in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. Why? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What does repentance mean? What does it mean? Well, it, the, the Greek word is metanoia. Meta, like metaphysics, is, is beyond. And noia is, has to do with your mind, like paranoia is, is, is screwed up thinking. So metanoia is thinking beyond. It literally means to think again, to, to rethink reality. Take your normal way of thinking and let God change it. That, that's kind of why I'm calling this series The Misunderstood Messiah. People had thoughts about the Messiah, and those thoughts and ideas and presuppositions drove their actions. They thought the Messiah was going to be this way and do these kind of things. But Jesus is saying you need a new way of thinking, a new understanding. And man, that is so true of us. We have these ideas about God, these presuppositions, these, these thoughts, and we're locked into them. In fact, we often fight to defend them about the way he works, about the type of people he loves, about what a blessing is and isn't, about the timing of God. These are all ways that we have about thinking about God, but repentance means that we need to open ourselves to rethink those See, some of our old mental patterns are deeply embedded in our thinking. And it's just like people thinking the Messiah is going to be a certain way, and he's not. To repent means to let go of those old ideas. It means to be open to surprises. And that's, that's the whole book of Mark. These first eight chapters, you're going to see over and over, Jesus does things that upset people. That, that they, their picture of the Messiah gets destroyed by his actions. He's hanging out with sinners. He's touching the lepers. He's, he's doing stuff on the Sabbath. How can the Messiah do stuff on the Sabbath? He challenges their ideas of what's clean and unclean. Sometimes it was fun to watch, you know, to see Jesus kind of upsetting these people. Other times it got very personal, right? <laughs> Excuse me. When Peter rebuked him for talking about his coming death and, and suffering at the hands of the Jewish leadership, Peter says, no way, that'll never happen. And, and Jesus rebukes Peter in Mark chapter 8. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You see what he's saying, Peter? Peter, you're thinking like men think. You've got to repent. You've got to rethink. You've got to start thinking like God thinks. And the reality is that if repentance is rethinking reality, then God's going to have to act in surprising ways very often to unsettle us enough to start us moving down mental pathways. If you've ever, how many of you have ever said this, why would God allow that? Or why would God do that? I don't understand. Just those phrases in your mind should be a little flag saying, maybe you don't understand fully the way God does things. Maybe you need to rethink your assumptions about God. And then in that situation, to be open to what he's saying. It's like an, an indicator light on your dashboard. Something about my thinking 
needs to be changed because I can't understand. And, and you may never understand, but even just that humble surrender to the fact that God may be doing it differently than you think he will, will open doors for you. How, how do we respond to this call to rethink? How do we respond to these surprises that God throws, some, some fun and some not so fun? Well, we've seen an example in Christmas, right? Mary has this angel show up at her door, challenged everything she ever thought possible. Challenged every assumption she probably ever had about God. And how does she respond in Luke 138? I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. You see, just like Mary with the angel, just like Jesus being baptized and then being led into the wilderness to be tempted, if we're going to be open to what Jesus has started, if we're going to let his surprises reshape our thinking, then we have to see humble surrender to God as our method. The heart of understanding this Messiah who has come is embodied in humble surrender to God. This should be the hallmark of all believers. This is the fruit of thinking that has repented, this humble surrender to God. And I'll be honest, I hear so many Christians today talking and fretting about our rights, about our, how, how they're taking away our rights. Oh my goodness, we have, to, we have to stand up, we have to fight for this. And yet what I see in Jesus and his followers is this humble surrender to trust that God is leading in every situation. Paul's favorite self-description was what? Slave or bondservant of Jesus. One who doesn't have any rights, one who has surrendered fully to the leadership of Jesus. I, I don't hear Jesus pushing for his rights. I don't hear him, you know, declaring that he, he should be free, that he's done nothing wrong, that why in the world are you crucifying me? No, he humbly surrendered to God's agenda. And, and he of all person, of all people ever, had a right to claim his rights, and yet he laid them aside. Philippians says, Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, did not consider equality with God to be his right. It was his right. But he didn't hang on to it, and he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know what? You may disagree with me as this, but, but our goal as Christians is not to win the argument. It's not to maintain control in the situation, whether it's a large-scale political control or a small-scale personal control. That's not our goal. Our goal is to humbly surrender to the leadership of God, to be open <coughs> to the surprising ways that he works, and to let that reshape our patterns of thinking and understanding, to let go of our picture of successful Christianity, right? We, we, to, to think maybe even through COVID and the government regulations, maybe even through our separation, God could actually do something that elevates the gospel. To, to let go of, of our fighting to get our rights, to get back what we want and what we have to have. 
and humbly surrender to God and realize that he is the one in control of this anyway. He's the one driving the bus. And maybe even though he's taking us down a road that we can't even understand, maybe God is doing something to unsettle us enough that we can repent in our thinking and trust that we can follow him wherever he leads and he will still be victorious because he is victorious already. You know, the moment that Jesus was fulfilling the Father's will most completely and most fully was the moment when he looked like he was an utter failure. When he looked like every right had been taken away from him. When he looked humiliated in front of people. And this was the moment when he was humbly surrendered at its deepest point to the Father. So that's what we're called to do. Not to win or to be successful but to surrender to the will of the Father and let the grace of God flow through us. To buy, buy all of that to, to continue to be a part of the mission that he's begun. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God's near. Repent. Believe the good news. Let's pray. God, we, we don't even realize. That's the problem with our thinking is we're so steeped in it that we don't even realize that we've drawn lines around you. We've, we've decided before you even act how we think you will act in situations. We've decided what's best for your church, what's best for us as individuals, what, what looks best in the world, what, what rights we have. And yet, God, you came and blew all of that away. You were not a Messiah that anyone expected. And yet you were the Messiah. I just pray as we walk through this series and mark God that you would shatter our preconceived notions, that you would surprise us in the way you interact in this text and the way you interact with us and open our minds to a repented type of thinking, a, 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 a repentance that trusts that if we follow you wherever you lead, even if it looks like failure, it's still victory because of your power and your grace. God, help us to be the church you want us to be, not the church we want to be. Help us to trust in your hand. Help us to, 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 to lay aside our nets and to follow you. Whatever it is we're holding on to, God, let us let go and follow wherever you lead. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being the Messiah. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Now give us the courage to surrender to your will in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now whether we realize it or not, that is the question that the whole world is asking, whether they realize it or not. What child is this? Who is this Jesus? And what has he got to say to my life? What has he got to say to our world today? You know, pastors like three points. Well, let me just give you my three real quick. The beginning of the good news of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was, was this text today. The continuation of the good news of Jesus Christ is you and me proclaiming and living out the kingdom here in hope and beyond. And the third point is the ultimate fulfillment of that is when he returns and makes all things new. That's, that's why we live. And, and the goal in this meantime is to humbly surrender to the leadership of God and allow this kingdom to be proclaimed through us. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.